well to the Ephesian elders. We're reading from the New International Version. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, if you're visiting here uh, this morning or if uh, you've come back from holidays, we're working through the book of Acts and uh, it's, it's an encouraging thing to do as we look ahead to uh, that congregation plant that Steve mentioned before. But before we look at this passage, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us now through your word, uh, that you would help us to know what the shape of the Christian life ought to be, but more than that, Lord, what the shape of uh, Christian leadership ought to be within the church. Lord, open our hearts to receive your words uh, and fix our eyes on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, since uh, time immemorial, people have been asking the question, what makes a good leader and what makes good leadership? Uh, If you go to any bookstore or if you search the web, you'll find thousands of books and millions of articles on what makes a good leader and what makes good leadership. Uh, It's an important question, I think, because bad leadership is terribly destructive. Bad political leaders can do untold damage. Uh, They can cause financial distress, they can send an economy into ruin, Uh, they can launch wars, they can instigate ethnic cleansing. Bad leadership in the workplace can make work almost unbearable. You might have been subject to that kind of bad leadership. On the other side, good leadership can make something exciting. It can make a workplace a fun place to work. And what's true of leadership in the world and the workplace is true of the church as well. Bad leadership can destroy a church. Bad leadership can destroy the faith of Christians. Good leadership can make the church a place of blessing and of gospel growth and an exciting and loving place to be. What makes a good leader? What makes a good leader in the church? What makes good church leadership? Well, Acts 20 seeks to answer that question. In Acts 20, Paul calls together the elders or the pastors or the overseers of the church. Those terms are interchangeable in the New Testament. Paul calls together the elders and the pastors of the church and that he planted in Ephesus. And as the chapter unfolds, it becomes clear that the reason that he did that, the reason he called them together was so that he could explain to them what their ministry should look like, what the shape of their ministry should be. Now, given that there are only uh, two pastors and six elders in the church, you might think that uh, the rest of us can just go and, uh, and Steve, Steve and I, <laughs> the elders, can stay behind. But that's not true. It's not, it's not true that this passage is only relevant to eight people because even if you're not an elder uh, and may never be an elder, it's still important to recognise what constitutes good leadership. Uh, it's still important to recognise what constitutes 
bad leadership or bad eldership. It helps us to know what kind of people we want to be elders. It helps us to know how to encourage people to be better elders or better leaders. When I worked as an engineer, one of my colleagues was very fond of the idea of upwards management, which is the idea that you can contribute to the success of the people above you by influencing their leadership in a positive way. Uh, by helping them to do their job better, they help you to do your job better and everything, everyone flourishes. So knowing what makes good eldership helps us to support those who are elders so that they can do the task that God has given to them so that we can all flourish together. Knowing what makes a good elder also helps us to know what to pray for those who are in leadership uh, over us or with us in the church. And knowing what makes a good elder helps those in other leadership positions to know how to serve wisely in the area that God has uh, placed them. So godly eldership is a model for godly growth group leading or godly Sunday school teaching uh, or for godly parenting. And of course, godly eldership is also an example of the godly Christian life. So much of what church leaders do in the Bible is the same as what we're all called to do. And here in this chapter, Paul is giving not just a model of godly leadership, but a model of ministry. He's giving a model of what it means to serve Jesus. So Paul sets before the Ephesian elders and us as well the shape of godly leadership, and he does it in three ways. He does it by looking back at his example of ministry in the past, uh, he does it by telling them the aim and the spirit of his ministry for the future. And he does it by charging them uh, to serve Jesus, uh, to serve the church bought with Jesus' blood. So he looks back, he looks to the future, and he gives them a charge. First of all, uh, Paul looks back uh, at the example of the ministry that he did among them. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So the elders know, they know the shape of Paul's ministry because they'd seen it. How did he live among them? Well, he first of all says he served them with great humility and with tears. That was the manner of his ministry. It's easy to do ministry. It's easy especially to, to be a leader, uh, to do that out of pride. It's easy to do ministry because it makes us feel good, because it serves our needs actually rather than the needs of other people. It's easy to do ministry for ourselves rather than because, as Paul was, we're serving the Lord. And it's so easy to do ministry dispassionately, ticking off the boxes one by one. Yes, I've done that. Yes, I turned up. Yes, I prepared. Uh, yes, I finished. Yes, people didn't fall asleep. It's so easy to do ministry dispassionately rather than earnestly. Weeping over lost souls, longing for people to repent, calling out uh, for God to change the hearts of people. Two of the most extraordinary statements in the Bible, I think, are those by Moses and Paul, uh, who say that they'd be willing to be cut off from God if it meant that other people might be saved. Paul says, I could wish myself accursed so that others might be saved. It's an incredible thing to say. 
But actually, that's the very spirit of Jesus who was cut off so that we might be saved. The love of Christ on the cross flowed through Paul's veins as he wept in his ministry for those who were going to a Christless eternity. And he wept perhaps too, as he does in other places, over the sins of the church and the division in the church. Paul's ministry was accompanied by great passion and by great love. Uh, And perhaps more remarkably still, Paul did all that while he was being severely tested. People were opposing him, uh, objecting to him. It's one thing to serve the Lord passionately and tearfully when life is going well. It's another thing to serve the Lord like that when people are trying to undermine you. But again, Paul's following the ministry uh, example that Jesus gave, who loved even when he was rejected, even when they falsely accused him, and even when they nailed him to a tree. From the first moment Paul set foot in the province of Asia, he served the Lord with great humility and tears in spite of testing and opposition. But Paul also served the Lord through his preaching ministry. Verse 20, You know I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. There's two important elements, I think, to Paul's preaching and teaching ministry. First, what he taught, and then second, where he taught it. So what did he teach? Well, he says he taught whatever would be helpful. That's, that's a pretty good aim. Uh, he taught whatever would be helpful. He didn't hang back from saying anything. So it's easy uh, for us to hold back on saying what needs to be said because we're afraid of causing offence or afraid even just of awkwardness. So we might never teach about marriage because we're afraid of alienating people who are single uh, or uh, causing hurt to people whose marriages have, have stumbled or broken down. Uh, or we might neglect to talk about an issue like sex because we're afraid that it will be awkward. But the end result of all that is that people don't hear what would be helpful for them to hear. And the end result is that people don't grow. In contrast, Paul says, he taught whatever would be helpful. But more than that, according to verse 21, he taught that everyone needed to turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So at the heart of Paul's model of ministry, a model of eldership, is actually evangelism, is actually the preaching of the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's easy, I think, for our model of eldership to become ingrown and introspective rather than having the kind of outward look that Paul has here. It's easy for eldership to be reduced to only caring for the existing flock. But Paul's model is of preaching the gospel everywhere and calling people to repent. Paul not only wants to guard the church, he absolutely wants to do that, but he also wants it to grow and to expand and to reach to the ends of the earth. And even within the church... It's far too easy for spiritual care to degenerate into only caring about people's uh, personal health or kind of present crises rather than caring about their eternal well-being. 
So the great test of that, I think, is what we pray for people. That is, do we more naturally pray for someone to find work or for someone to get over their cold? Or do we pray that they grow to maturity in Christ, that they give up the sins that are causing them to stumble, uh, that they would repent and believe in Jesus? What is the tone of our, of our care? Is it actually spiritual care or is it actually really just uh, physical care? Paul's chief concern was repentance and faith in Jesus. The second part of Paul's preaching and teaching ministry was where he taught. So what he taught, then where he taught. Where did he teach? He taught publicly and from house to house. So two sides, big public ministry and then smaller scale ministry. House to house probably doesn't refer to meeting families or to individuals as much as it does going to houses where smaller groups of Christians were meeting. So you see Paul and other, the other apostles modelling that through Acts. Uh, you see Paul preaching in big, big public places like the synagogue. You go to a new town, you go to the synagogue, you go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, but then you also find him in homes, and yet in those homes he's not just meeting with that family, but he's actually meeting with a whole lot of other Christians who've come along uh, and met in that family's home. So if you like, it's the big public places, the lecture, hall, the lecture halls, uh, and the homes with, with smaller groups of, of other Christians. So at the risk, if you like, of pushing Paul's model of ministry into our model of ministry, it's a bit like saying that he taught in church and in small groups. Uh, typically in Reformed and Presbyterian-style churches, there's a heavy emphasis on elders doing a lot of one-on-one pastoral care. Uh, and so from that, there's the, there's the notion of the home visit, if you like. But it's significant, I think, that Paul's model of shepherding the flock here focuses not on that, but on big gatherings and small gatherings of Christians. One of the reasons we go on and on about people being part of growth groups is because it's actually a really effective way of shepherding the church. Uh, And we see that in in the way that the apostles do their ministry uh, in the book of Acts. It's interesting to note, actually, that there are very few examples at all in the New Testament of anyone doing one-on-one style ministry. Most ministry happens in groups. During his earthly life, Jesus typically spent his time with the 12 disciples. And the smallest he really ever gets down to is three people. Yeah, there are times when he meets the, the woman at the well or he talks to Nicodemus at night, but, but the majority of his ministry is done in groups. Big groups, feeding of the 5,000, and small groups, his 12 disciples. I suspect that our emphasis on one-on-one style ministry owes uh, more to our individualistic culture than it does to anything else. In New Testament uh, times, in contrast, life was very communal. So in Acts 10, when Peter dropped in on Cornelius for a uh, home visit... Uh, Cornelius invites all his friends and families to hear Peter speak. Which is not to say that one-on-one ministry wasn't being done in the church. Rather, that one-on-one ministry was being done by the whole church, by the elders and by everybody else as well. 
So most often in the New Testament, the private ministry, the one-on-one ministry, the one-another ministry is the responsibility of the church as a whole. We are to love one another, to welcome one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. That obviously uh, includes the elders, but it includes more than that. In fact, there's far too many people in churches for one-on-one ministry to be effectively done by a handful of people. Actually, we all need to do it. One-on-one ministry is incredibly powerful, but it's uh, time uh, prohibitive. We all need to be involved in that, really, uh, for it to be done. What I'm uh, trying to suggest, I guess, is that while one-on-one ministry is part of eldership, it doesn't necessarily lie at the heart of it as it sometimes has been construed uh, to lie at the heart of it. Actually, what lies at the heart of eldership is big and small-scale public ministry, a ministry of teaching which is helpful and evangelistic. So Paul sets before the Ephesian elders his example of ministry among them. Uh, Next, he sets before them the aim and the spirit of his ministry uh, uh, that he hopes to do in the future. So he says in verse 22, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. What's the shape of his future ministry? Well, Paul's going to Jerusalem, but look at this. He doesn't know what's going to happen there. He has no idea what that ministry will look like. He only knows one thing, that prison and hardship are going to face him there. It's a radical departure from the kind of uh, ministry job descriptions that we like to have. Uh, what, we, we like to know what our ministry is going to be uh, and what it will look like. Uh, and we prefer to know that it's a ministry that we can handle and a ministry that probably doesn't involve too much hardship. We prefer to do ministry which has the least cost attached to it. That's because we're lazy people by nature and sinful people by nature. But Paul embraces a ministry which he knows uh, uh, nothing about except that it will involve prison and hardship. And it's not, uh, that's not the only hardship that awaits him, prison and, uh, and persecution. He says in verse 25, he also knows that they'll never see his face again. So look at what happens at the end of the chapter in verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. One of the costs of ministry is often separation from the people we love and the sadness that comes from that separation. Uh, so as, as you know, we're hoping to start a new congregation uh, in the afternoons at the end of February and uh, we've been asking people to volunteer for that ministry. One of the people who volunteered uh, for that said to me uh, that they thought that joining the afternoon congregation was the right thing to do, but that it was hard for them and it was going to be hard for them because they were so saddened to think of all the people that they loved that they wouldn't see week after week. And they're right to feel that way, I think. 
There's a tremendous sense of loss in dividing two congregations up. Even though our situation is nothing like Paul's situation, where he said, you'll never see my face again. Even if we split into two congregations, we still live in the same city, we, we can still see people outside church, we can still drop on e- in on each other, we can still visit each other in the different congregations from time to time, but it's still sad, isn't it? And it's right, I think, for us to acknowledge that and to say, yes, this is a sad thing. But sadness doesn't mean that it's wrong. In fact, sometimes grief and separation is the cost of gospel ministry. That's so obvious when you send uh, the pools to South Sudan, isn't it? Uh, or, Or we send out Quentin and Ashley. Sometimes grief and separation is the cost of gospel ministry. We see it easily in mission. We see it much more readily in our own local ministry. And here's the reason that Paul can embrace a ministry like that. He says in verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The anchor point for his costly ministry is that his life doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is serving Jesus. What an extraordinary uh, sentiment, I think. I wonder if you can say that about your life. (laughs) That your life doesn't matter, but that all that matters is serving Jesus. Uh, When missionaries in the past used to go to the mission field, some of them would pack their belongings not in a bag, but in a coffin. They would go with their coffin already made because they didn't expect ever to come back. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper tells the story of Adoniram Judson who went as a missionary to Burma. And before he left, he uh, tragically fell in love with a young lady. But uh, he wanted to marry her uh, and he wanted to take her with him on this mission mission to Burma, which he never expected to come back from. Uh, And so he wrote to this girl's father and he said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her saviour from heathen saved, through her means from eternal eternal woe and despair. For most of us, uh, we'll probably never be called to those kinds of extreme deprivations and our proposals of marriage will never take that kind of shape 
But there are other smaller and no less significant ways, I think, that our service of Jesus can and should trump our pursuit of our own lives and our own satisfaction. To give just uh, one example, I rang someone this week to ask them if they'd be willing to serve in the church uh, this year in a particular way. And that person is already doing a tremendous amount uh, of work in the church, and so I was nervous about asking them uh, because of that. I was reluctant to ask because I was reluctant to increase their burden even more than it already is. But in the end, I rang uh, and asked them anyway, and they said to me, well, if it needs to be done, I'll do it. And I thought, praise the Lord. Or in Paul's words, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So Paul sets before the Ephesian elders his example of ministry. Uh, He sets before them the aim and the spirit of his ministry. Finally, he charges the the elders to serve the church, uh, church bought with Jesus' blood. He says in verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul's main charge is to keep watch, to keep watch over the church. They're overseers, he says. They're not overseers primarily of the church budget uh, or of the church toilet paper uh, or of the colours of the wall. They're overseers of people's eternal destiny. Or in the other language that Paul uses, they're shepherds, they're pastors, they're gathering the flock, they're leading the flock, protecting the flock, like Jesus bringing back stray sheep. The reason that the elders need to keep watch is because people will come into the church, says Paul, and people will rise up even from within the church, seeking to distort the truth. Paul describes these people as savage wolves. I know of a person uh, who joined a church with the express purpose of destroying the faith of people in that church. They were an atheist, they went to the church to undermine the faith of people. And tragically, they were successful in at least one case. Of course, some distortions of the truth are less deliberate and more subtle than that. Uh, what about the lie that if you have enough faith, God will heal you, or if you have enough faith, you'll be successful? That false gospel leaves behind it a trail of people who are no longer Christians because they never received what they were told that they would receive. They never received. Uh, what the Bible never promises. And in our day, people don't even need to set foot in the church to lead people astray. Their books or their blogs or their podcasts can do it, can do it from the other side of the world. Justifying sins of various kinds, abandoning Jesus, denying hell, rejecting the resurrection. 
Whenever someone tells me that they've go- they Googled something about Christianity on the web internally, I totally freak out because I think it's so hard to sort through any true information on the web, isn't it? And it's what doctors say about, about diseases. They say, don't diagnose yourself through Google. And what's true of medicine is true of Christianity, I think, as well. Keep watch, says Paul. Why? Because these are people over which God has made them overseers. People for whom God has made them responsible. People for whom Christ died. People for whom they must give an account. It's the most terrifying, I think, thought of all. uh, That for those of us in leadership in the church, we'll need to give an account uh, of the people for whom we are responsible. Uh, There are people who have left the faith or left the church and I know that they keep me awake and others awake at night as well. Uh, In this church, the elders uh, try to do the task of shepherding the flock by dividing up the whole church among us. Uh, We each are responsible for about 12 or 13 families and we pray for them and we try to keep an eye on how things are going for people. We don't necessarily try to personally care for everyone one-on-one. Rather, we try to ensure that those people are being cared for through all the ministry of the church. And every month uh, we meet together and if there's anyone that we're worried about, we have a list called our care list and we put people's names on that list and we pray for them. We don't share what people have told us in confidence but we share those things that people have given us permission to share uh, or we share those things that we've noticed and that we're concerned about. People go on the care list for all kinds of reasons. It could be a spiritual issue. Uh, It can also be a health issue uh, or that they're facing a difficult time of life. And depending on what the issue is, one of us might be asked to follow up with them, to meet with them, uh, or sometimes we might uh, organise for someone else in the church who knows them better to meet up with them. We might organize for, uh, try and organise for them to meet one-on-one with someone uh, regularly for a period of time to help them. But actually, it's not just the job of the elders to keep watch over the flock. It's actually, according to the New Testament, everyone's responsibility. Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you need to address it. Paul says if you see a fellow Christian caught in a sin, you should restore them. He doesn't say go and find the elders and and ask them to bring the person back. He says if you see a fellow Christian caught in a sin, you should restore them. So also we should encourage one another, rebuke one another, pray for one another, not not give up meeting together with one another. We should spur one another on to love and good deeds. Sometimes, as Jesus said, that needs to be escalated. That is, you've tried to address something with someone, but they won't listen. And perhaps you need help. Even sometimes just help to know whether or not you're making something out of nothing. Because sometimes we are making something up out of nothing. But in those cases where we need help, it can be helpful to speak to one of the pastors uh, or the elders to seek help and guidance. And I encourage you uh, to do that. Elders, says Paul, are to keep watch over the flock. 
They were also to keep watch over themselves because it's impossible to keep watch over others if you yourself are sliding away from the faith. Well, it's a high calling, uh, and so Paul finishes, I think, with the only thing that can be done, which is by committing these elders to God and to God's word. He says in verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The task that God lays out is beyond any of us, not just in terms of complexity uh, or in terms of the time that it takes, but also beyond us in that we make mistakes. Things are left undone. The things that we do, we do poorly. We need God, Paul reminds us, and we need God's word. We need God because his faithfulness is more powerful than our unfaithfulness. And we need God's word because his words are more powerful than our words. We need God because we're weak and vacillating. We need God because we can't change a person's heart. We need God because only his power can overcome our errors. We need God's gracious word because in it we find the treasure of the gospel. In it we meet Christ. We need God's gracious word because in it alone God speaks clearly. We need God's gracious word because his words turn darkness to light and call sinners to repentance. We need God's gracious word because only his words can strengthen our faint hearts and our weak knees. If God has put you in some kind of leadership or some kind of ministry, then I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting uh, receiving and using God's gracious word. And please pray uh, for those of us in the church who are responsible for keeping watch over it. Pray that God would strengthen and empower us for a task which is so utterly beyond us. And please pray that God's word would work powerfully in our hearts and in the hearts of those who hear it through our ministry. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you have purchased your church, men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation, purchased for yourself by the blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you that you have not left us, each Christian on our own, but you have called us into communities of people working together, serving together, living together to encourage each other, to build each other up in the most holy faith. And thank you that in those communities, Lord, you have given and set apart leaders to oversee the church and to shepherd the flock. Lord, thank you for the leaders in our church. Lord, thank you for 
for the men who serve currently and for those who have served in the past in the difficult and demanding job of shepherding uh, the church and keeping watch over it. Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen those in those positions in our church and in other churches so that they might be faithful and so that the church might not be destroyed either by bad leadership or by savage wolves who creep in amongst us. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive them for the errors that they have made, the things left undone, uh, the things not noticed, the good things done in a bad way. Forgive them for the damage that they may have done to the church. Strengthen them to be faithful in the future. And for each of us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be servants of Christ in the church, working for its good, keeping watch over our brothers and sisters, serving one another in love, encouraging each other, being gracious to one another, so that the church of Christ might grow up together into Christ Jesus, its head. Grant us this, we pray, for the glory of Christ. Amen.